Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers, and today we are going on down to South Park to have ourselves a time. And what kind of journey would it be without the friendly faces of our four guests? These humble folks without temptation who are joining me today include comedian, writer, and host of The Political Orphanage, Andrew Heaton. Hello! As well as his co-host on Losers, Pretenders, and Scoundrels, as well as Stone Cold Paradise, fellow unlicensed historian Andrew Young. Hello! And returning to the show, we are so glad to have back co-founder of Feminists for Liberty, Kat Murdy. Hi, glad to be the least funny and only non-Andrew on the show today. (laughs) What made South Park stand out when it first came out? Like, when it first premiered, what was it that made it so new and fresh and has given it the staying power if it is the same thing? Was it just the complete subversive, irreverent nature of the humor? Was it something else? How did it get to the sort of cultural touchstone that it is today? I mean, well, so there was cartoon shows that were on before that we all know about. Simpsons already been on the air. We already had stuff like King of the Hill, which I love. But South Park, I think, took it beyond that. It it was the first cartoon show, I believe, that was actually TV MA um, to the mainstream American audience. So this was the first time it was a truly adult cartoon show coming on on mainstream and it was just over the top in every every little way in in a way that Simpsons you know it's fun it's absurdist but not like South Park South Park is just maximalist in every sense yeah the the level of boundary put I you know the the Simpsons was great I suppose it still might be but I haven't I haven't wa- really I quit watching the Simpsons when Futurama became a thing and I haven't really gone back uh but but the Simpsons was super fun, very, very clever, uh, made big impacts on everybody in my generation, but was not super edgy. Like it it was when it very first started because they said the word but and shut up, both of which were verboten in the Heaton household of that time. And so I was required to watch it with my parents. It was considered too risque, whereas now it is the standard bearer of wholesome American uh, uh, morality. Whereas wow, they, de- they didn't even let me watch it in my mm-hmm, house. It was mm-hmm. off limits completely. They, right. they, if they could block the channel and figure out how to work the remote. There, there were a lot of people like that. But South Park came out the gate different though. And I, I feel like South Park has, it's, it's matured as a series. So uh, initially when it first started, it really was shock humor, which was great. Like I, I started watching South Park when I was in middle school and it was just hilariously, uproariously inappropriate. Uh, there, there's an episode where uh, Stan's grandfather really wants to die, and so uh, uh, is is just telling Cartman these horrible things about how he dug up the corpse of his grandmother and made sweet love to it. And he's just, it really was like for for a 16 year old that was a crazy level of of impropriety being flouted and uh, really funny in that capacity. Um, so I think that that's how it started. I, th- I think that the kick that it got was by being extremely subversive. I think that it's remained subversive, but the subversive element of it has matured over time. So when it first started, it was just, these are things you can't say and we're going to say them. And then I feel like uh, it kind of went into a second phase where it, it purposefully enjoyed poking Democrats and Republicans. That's kind of in the Team America era, where they consciously wanted to piss off Republicans at the beginning of that film, and then consciously wanted to piss off Democrats at the latter end of that film. And then and then in the kind of mid-2000s, it, it sort of matured into a 
really uh, scalpel sharp satire of culture to where they would they would go in and do some of the best political satire and certainly the best cultural satire that you could find in the United States. And, and it remained subversive in that capacity because there were no sacred cows, but it became a kind of targeted, this is the thing that a group finds holy or off limits. So we're going to discuss that as opposed to this, these are words we can't say, which is how it started. Well, and I think, I mean, I think South Park I would even say The Simpsons is a product of its time, too, because there was a time when people wouldn't let you watch The Simpsons in your household because not just because of, you know, butt and shut up, but because it was kind of pillaring the standard American family and showing, you know, a father who kind of smacked his kids around, uh, a kid who was not, you know, uh, leave it to beaver kind to his parents. Um, It was not... um, you know, and and it was paired with Married with Children on Fox, which I found to be a really great pairing of two shows. So it, I mean, I know in my house, we we couldn't watch The Simpsons, and then we couldn't watch South Park until eventually my parents saw both shows and laughed so much that they're like, "We can't stop our kids from watching this because we think it's so funny, and they know that we're hypocrites." Um, and then yeah, I mean. I would say The Simpsons less so, but I would agree with Heaton. South Park definitely just kept evolving. It evolved into, I would say, even before Team America. I think South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, the the feature film, is, oh, is, right. yes. is such yeah. a, a fun example of them basically pointing out that parents blaming television for their own poor parenting is ridiculous. And that, you know, that whole movie is a lambast of kind of cultural norms. And and a great entree into the musical genius of Trey Parker and Matt Stone. And they are, let's be very clear on this, they are musical geniuses. They they I mean, are doing Book things. Book of Mormon is still touring, right? Book of How Mormon's brilliant. And the, the music's fantastic. Like if it weren't funny, I would still enjoy the music. Yeah, they have they have such a, a brilliant sense of like what constitutes a good song and then what makes it the perfect kind of song to create a satire of a particular subject. Um I mean, even when you have (laughs) a song like Uncle to open, pretty much open your movie, it's such a, the song itself is so simple. They're just repeating that phrase more or less over and over and over again. But then they have a, a breakdown that is just farting, a fart breakdown in the middle of the song. And it's so well uh, I guess orchestrated is the word that we'll choose to use, but it's so well put together that it's like musically inspiring in addition to being just funny because it's, it's fart humor. And and then the Blame Canada song is great. Like and and also like South Park doesn't tend to be super absurdist, but it does have when it does deploy it, it's it's really funny. Like in the world of South Park, it's just established fact that Canada is an ethnic group. That Canadian is an ethnic group, just the same way that like English people and Scots and Germans are. And you can be racist if you don't like Canadians, they have very distinctive heads. Uh, I, I find that, and they never draw attention to that. It's just established. It's a very funny thing. Right. I, w- I would disagree with you on one thing, Heaton. No, I think South Park tends to be absurdist a lot. I think that's what makes it so successful is that they yeah, take their- Mostly I think us. because they take their- Point taken. Yeah, they take their, anything that they're going to pillory, they'll take to the furthest possible conclusion, which I think is, I mean, when we talk about satire, I think successful satire requires absurdism. I think you have to go so far away that your audience- has a has trouble thinking that you're being serious, which, you know, to go to the original Jonathan Swift, you have to talk about eating babies in a very, you know, literal sense for your audience to not be like, or at least the majority of your audience to not be like, oh, he's serious. 
Right. I think it sort of started out as just like an attack on PC culture, which was why they're taking it to that far extent. But that's what makes all of the satire good. And the fact that they didn't focus just on, you know, attacking PC culture, that's sort of what shapes how the episodes flow and the types of humor that they use. But there's really, it, it attacks everyone and everything. There's nothing sacred, and that's what makes it good. It doesn't feel as if, oh, you have to fall into this camp or that camp to enjoy South Park. You just, you know, if you're a human who lives in America and has some basic understanding of how the culture works here, South Park will be funny to you. Well, that's really interesting that you mentioned that, the, the sort of central tension of the show, if you can nail one down, and the sort of motivating force behind it is that Nothing is sacred. Nothing is off limits. Everyone is up for ridicule, uh, you know, no holds barred. And that lack of boundaries really is itself the only boundary if you can consider it that. That's the the value that the show kind kind of supposes and builds itself upon, which is really interesting considering that Matt Stone and Trey Parker are some of the most famous or maybe not most famous, but perhaps I think the most successful libertarian comedians, um, at least in the you know recent couple of decades, I would assume. Um, and they've kind of been on the fence over, over the years, whether they would identify with that label or whether they identify with any label. There's times when they have, you know, sort of implied that it's uh, not quite fitting for them and other times where they think it is probably the most apt of those that we have. Is South Park kind of a libertarian show? Like what, what values of that ideology are shown within and and is it really an embracing of libertarian ideology or does it just manifest as a rejection of the institutionalized conservative and liberal dominant ways of going about politics and culture i think by default they're they they attack systems uh their their entire philosophy seems to attack accepted systems or accepted uh beliefs and norms and i think there's parallels to that in libertarianism for sure because you know fundamentally libertarianism has a skeptical nature to it in terms of believing and trusting in institutions that we've been told we have to trust and i think that there's a there's a crossover there whether or not that manifests itself as like a a political ideology i don't know but they're definitely people who attack overall systemic thinking. Yeah, what I think is really interesting here is there's actually a political term that's uh, come out of the show. Andrew Sullivan coined it uh, now almost 20 years ago, but South Park Republican. Uh, And it's this idea of what really is almost a libertarian. It's sort of more fiscally conservative individuals who also push back against PC culture who aren't uh, really the moral majority churchgoer types um, who like, who, uh, you know, don't really like um, sort of the more lefty, uh, the more lefty causes, but also don't like the more right wing causes. And I think that that's kind of where Trey Parker and Matt Stone fit. You know, they've said that they're not uh, libertarians, but if they had to be labeled, they would be most close to be libertarians. I think that's what it is. It's not the, the show isn't a vehicle for ideology. The show is just, um, I forget which one of them said it, but I really hate conservatives and I really hate liberals. Right. And so it's like, they're just across the board. They're there to push back against 
the power structures that are there. What they see is the things that are not acceptable to criticize, and that's what makes the show good. So I don't think that it's exactly libertarian. There's not a libertarian consistency or ideology, but it's against these established power structures, which then has this sort of like libertarian flow to it. Yeah, I think it's a, it's either adjacent or it's kind of there's there's a vague libertarian flavor to it. Um, I, I think it, it depends on how we want to talk about libertarianism. I think libertarianism does tend to be very concerned about the accumulation of power and the deployment of force. And in, in that capacity, um, South Park is always taking pot shots at whoever is in power, culturally or politically. Although, uh, as you all point out, Kat and Andrew, they're not dogmatic about it. Like um, uh, a lot of libertarians, if they were sitting down to write a program would not make fun of corporate malfeasance because it's, well, but the corporation did it, everyone, blah, 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 uh, NAP, and would quit writing jokes about it. They've never been hamstrung by that. They don't, there are, they do not have sacred libertarian cows that they must maintain. That's never, ever been a part of it. But I think what you, what you can say about them is, um, one, uh, uh, Andrew, I'm going to say Landry, to your point, um, uh, yes, I, they, they are a, a kind of willful rejection of Republican and Democratic bandwagoning. That does not automatically make you libertarian. You could be something else. You could be a monarchist. You could be a, a communist. You could be something else, right? So that, that in and of itself does not make them libertarian. But I do think that they broadly fall into a, a worldview that is comporting itself with libertarianism. What I mean by that is relying on uh, Arnold Kling, a, an economist that I quite like, um, Progressives tend to understand the world in terms of oppressor versus victim. And if you watch MSNBC, that could be the subtitle to every single story they have is little guy gets stepped on. That's everything. And if, if things don't enter that worldview, they don't really compute for com progressives. Conservatives, their tagline is civilization is under threat. Any Fox show you watch, civilization is under threat, can absolutely be the subheading to it. So conservative humor tends to be more like King of the Hill, where it's uh, it's there's there's the patriarch figure who is common sense who's who's pushing back against the the uh, the idiocy of pencil-headed overthinkers and that kind of thing, right? So I would say King of the Hill is actually more conservative in its outlook, whereas libertarianism, according to Kling, and I think this is pretty accurate in terms of how libertarians see the world and express the world, is coercive versus uh, voluntary. Now, that that's not something that they're returning to on a regular basis. It's not something that seems to animate them. But I do think that they they seem to have a sense of humor that more comports with that kind of worldview. And they'll kind of wink at it occasionally. I mean, they, they, Kat, you bring up, I think, accurately that they've sort of said, like, look, we're not really libertarians. But like in 2016, they said, between Trump and, and Hillary, we would vote for Gary Johnson if we thought he had a chance. Like they, So they're sort of vaguely there. But um, and it, it's it's also the reason they've been able to be successful. So me being very funny and swimming in libertarian circles, every year or two, uh, some millionaire goes, "We should have a, a libertarian South, or we should have a, a libertarian show that's very popular." And my response is, "You do. It's called South Park. Um, it's very good at tackling those." And they're like, "Well, no, no, we want to have a funny libertarian show." And uh, there's there's sort of two kind of of libertarians. There's Libertarians that think freedom works pretty well and central planning doesn't work very well. And so let's default on freedom and, and be skeptical of government. And then there's the other group of libertarians that 
carries a manifesto around in a plastic Walmart sack about why all voluntary force is permissible, but no other voluntary, if it's not voluntary, I have to stop the car on the way to Disneyland because we have to discuss this right now. And those guys aren't going to be great at writing comedy because they're, they're going to have to have those sacred cows that they never touch ever, ever, ever under any circumstance. Uh, and the more sacred cows you have, the harder it is to write comedy. And um, Trey, Mar- uh, Trey Parker, Matt Stone are not beholden to that. Yeah, so I think that, you know, what's good about South Park is that, you know, it started out as this anti-PC show. And so as a result of that, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, people kind of referred to them as conservative, uh, conservative, uh, conservatives as a conservative show. They were conservative humorists and they pushed back against that. That's when they first said that, you know, if they were going to be labeled, they would be more libertarian, though they don't accept that label either. Um, and I think that that's kind of really what the show is about they, because they do attack things like, uh, you know, they have the, I forget his name, but the principal, uh, PC bro, PC, PC, PC principal, uh, principal, yeah. PC principal. Yeah. He's, he's fantastic. Right. And he really is kind of a character that a lot of modern Republicans would really like. And at the same time, the show also attacks organized religion. Uh, Satan is a recurring character. Um, it attacks, uh, you know, it attacks people who want to uh, censor shows like South Park um, for how vulgar it can be. Um, and so it's really it, it's not trying to get in the pocket of anybody. And I think that if they really were true to an ideology that they were trying to push, it wouldn't work. If anything, their only ideology is irreverence. Well put. That was a much more succinct version of the, the babbling monologue that I just had. If you really take it to heart, it's kind of tough to it, it's it's kind of I mean I wouldn't call it nihilistic but it certainly doesn't make you feel cool for for like being passionate about things like anytime you start to really believe in something you're like well now I'm I'm opening myself to you know get made fun of for whatever reason and to a certain extent I think it's healthy for every person to be understanding of you know not taking themselves too seriously but is there a line that they won't cross and and should there be and maybe maybe it's not to imagine it like a line you shouldn't cross cuz like we've established that there are no boundaries for them that that's antithetical to their mission to consider it that but is there some thing that they you know w- will not broach or that would be would sort of turn this on its head because it it really does make you think like is it just it, it has this sort of uh you know stereotypically gen x don't care about anything it's all meaningless type of humor and it had a, a strange impact you know i'm i'm thinking of like all of the kids that i grew up with who grew up not with the super early south park that really understood that it was pushing boundaries to actually like say things against the institutions and media and expectations but really all, <laughs> all they heard was you know cartman you know yells at all the other kids and calls everybody gay slurs and were like he's funny he can get away with it 
And then you have shows like Rick and Morty, which I think are very different and very smart and irreverent in their own way. These are not the same show by any means, but people took the wrong things from it. It has what I, you know, what I sort of refer to as like a fight club kind of syndrome. Um, Like they released the McDonald's sauces for Rick and Morty years ago. And sure, McDonald's didn't do a good job stocking these sauces, but it became this like big internet meme that people expected to just be terrible to these workers at these fast food places because you couldn't get your Szechuan sauce uh, and kind of embodying this like nothing matters Rick Sanchez kind of attitude. So it it's this weird, I, I get a weird feeling and I feel conflicted about these shows because I want to say that I really value and am supportive of this. Like no one should take themselves so seriously that they cannot joke about themselves. But on the other hand, does a show get so big that it needs to understand the significance that it has on its audience. And and maybe this is something I think you've talked about this before, Heaton, the sort of difference in like improv and, and stand up comedians, the sort of deontological and utilitarian mindset about like, does your comedy do something or does it just exist? Like, what do you make of that? And is it a responsibility that the content maker should care about or should they just say, I make this, I have a message, what you do with it and what you take with it is your own business? Well, I was just going to say to the to the first question, whether or not there's a line that they won't cross, uh, I don't think consciously that there is one. I would assume that like anyone, they have their own various ingrained biases that might lead them away from talking about a particular subject. But I think by default, they're reaction to what they see uh, in the news or on social media or what have you is someone's taking something to an extreme that I think is too much uh, and ridiculous. I'm going to find a way to make fun of that thing. And I don't think it's necessarily always passion. You know, people can be passionate about things and they're not going to go after everyone. It's when they see it crossing the lines of common sense or crossing the lines of uh, thoughtful passion into blind passion. Um, I think that's when they go for it. And I don't really think they, you know, just based on interviews and based on the sheer volume of the work of things that they've made fun of, it doesn't seem like there's anything that they're not willing to touch because it's a sacred cow. Um, that's the impression I get. So I, I agree with that. I'm glad, Landry, that you brought up Rick and Morty uh, because R- Rick and Morty is occasionally... Um, painted as a as a libertarian funny cartoon, it is not. Um, the the creators of, of Rick and Morty, Dan Harmon, are are emphatically not libertarian. Uh, he is a a Hollywood liberal. Um, what they are is nihilistic. That is what they are doing, and they are upfront about that. That uh, that Rick is a nihilist. Uh, he it's not that he is anti-Democrat and anti-Republican, but loves free markets and individual freedom. It's that he just hates everything and doesn't believe that anything has meaning, right? So these are do, do two different things. And in that capacity, I do think that South Park has a touch of nihilism to it. Uh, it, it has a nihilistic flavor to it. I don't think that makes it bad, however. Um, there was a there was like a whole Twitter thing um, about a year and a half ago about how South Park poisoned everything uh, and, and made everybody nihilistic. And it's sort of a yes, but... Um, yes, I do think that South Park takes the piss out of anything that takes itself seriously or is even um, uh, enthusiastic about it. 
but I want there. I don't mind there being humor like that. I think that the the response of that is incumbent upon us. It's how we react to this. So, for example, um, when I watch "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" two or three times in a row. I can tell that I talk louder around people. I just yell at people more because that's what all the characters are doing. Well, it's a funny show. It's okay that they're yelling at each other, but it's not okay for me to just yell at people because I've been watching it. I should have the presence of mind as the consumer of this media to go, that was funny and those people are dirtbags and the humor is coming from them being dirtbags and that it's inappropriate for them to be dirtbags. I am not going to go be a dirtbag. And the the other interesting corollary to all of this is we're now seeing a, a kind of what would you call it, like an earnestness pushback against South Park. And you can like these things simultaneously, incidentally, but um, I, I think we reached kind of peak snark maybe about three years ago where it was really cool to not like things. And if you liked things, you had to do it ironically. Like if you're in Williamsburg five years ago and you're riding a bike, you'd be this like- This is more it, like 2008. 2000, I'm always behind uh, on this, <laughs> but you, you see someone on a bike and they're like, isn't it funny that I'm riding a bike? Isn't it stupid? And you're like, you could just like a bike, right? And you're seeing this on the flip side in humor right now. Ted Lasso and the Detroiters are great examples of earnestness being funny. And it's actually kind of- uh, I think a bit biting in our culture that people who like things unapologetically are amusing to us. That someone that just is really excited is inherently funny. Um, and that's very different than the South Park model, right? But I think they can both coexist. I would say the good place, hmm? the good place is another example. Of yeah. That. I uh, honestly, I'm kind of taken aback by the fact that anyone would suggest that South Park has made people nihilistic. I mean, South Park came about at the end of the 90s. And, you know, that sounds very ahistorical if you look at. 90s culture in general, or as Landry, as you put it, the whole Gen X generation that was steeped in nihilism well before South Park. But um, I want to go back to what you called almost the fight club problem, right? Because I think about this all the time. There's so many great pieces of pop culture, fight club, uh, chief amongst them, uh, American Psycho, Rick and Morty's a good one. Uh, I love Batman. The Joker as a character is another one. That it's almost like people... Uh, glob onto them and miss the fact that these characters are meant to be the punchline or villains and you know or villains right like uh the joker says why so serious and these people and there's so many people who are out there repeating that exact line and they're taking it very seriously they they're completely missing the fact that this is like where the creators or the show, the media is making fun of that character is kind of lampooning it in a way. And of course, like uh, we're not talking about Batman, so I won't get too much into Joker. I mean, it's not quite a lampoon, but at the same time, that is kind of the approach here. You know, Eric Cartman, yes, he throws out um, gay slurs and slurs of all kinds. And it's just generally an unlikable character. You're not supposed to watch Cartman and want to be Cartman. You're supposed to watch Cartman and be like, oh, he's representing all the terribleness in our society. And yet somehow he's, because he's out there doing this, we can also see that it's, it's not just him who's terrible. It's not the people who are so openly terrible. There's a lot of other terribleness that's because he's this, crazy over-the-top character that we're able to see that even these other aspects, the more PC aspects, the folks who aren't yelling out the slurs can be pretty terrible as well. Well, and, and I think that's kind of how they avoid being just a nihilistic show because Cartman is someone who doesn't really believe in anything but himself. And oftentimes, sometimes he wins, but oftentimes he loses or is end up 
uh, ends up being made the fool. So they they kind of walk the line sometimes in having some of their or like Randy is another character who is an idiot, obviously, but like leans into kind of doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons and gets, you know, loses pretty heavily because of it. So I think they they get away with kind of being. So there's a kind of morality arc yes. there. Yeah, I think there is a message. I think there is a message. I don't think that the purpose of the show is to have a message. But even within all of those episodes, they go over the top. But there's something that's sort of at the core there that is kind of reasonable, right? It's because they get out to this maximalist, no bounds, the worst possible example of whatever we're talking about today that you see, okay, so there is something in the middle that kind of makes sense. Right. I, th- I think that comes from I, they I, understand uh, story so well. They have such a solid understanding of what makes a compelling and satisfying story that uh, you can't walk away from a South Park episode not f- feeling as though uh, you're empty. You ha- you feel fulfilled. And by doing that, it inevitably kind of works against nihilism because to f- truly feel fulfilled, fulfilled in a story arc of an episode, you have to walk away with some sense of satisfaction. And I th- I mean, South Park, the movie is an example of that, too. By the end of the movie, it's all kumbaya and everybody's happy. Everybody loves each other. And they realize that Canada is not so bad. And Terrence and Philip are all friends like it's a it's a, it's a very positive ending in a movie that is making fun of all kinds of things. To, to piggyback on a, on a prior comment as well, um, Kat, I'm glad that you brought up the the general in, impropriety of, of Cartman. Um, there, there is a form of humor which is laughing at something which is inappropriate. So like the the example of this would be when we're laughing at Cartman, uh, who is for saying something anti-Semitic to Kyle, it's not because we are like, ha ha, the Jews, at least it shouldn't be, right? It's laughing because one, the, the anti-Semitism in it is an in and of itself ludicrous. We can see that it is crazy on some level, but then beyond that, um, or like Terrence and Philip doing fart jokes and things like that. It's not that the fart jokes are funny. It's that it's just ridiculous how far they're taking this thing you're not supposed to say. And we're we're sort of we the audience are are laughing at yeah that is very inappropriate. I mean it's it's kind of the the prototy- prototypical dead baby joke kind of thing where you're 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 laughing laughter. at the yeah you're laughing at the extent at which it's taken. Um, and in that capacity, when people get offended by South Park, you sort of have to remind them. Right, they're not making an earnest anti-Semitic joke. That would be a different thing and a, a thing that we should indeed crack down on. They're making fun of how awful it is that this awful character is making an anti-Semitic joke. We're laughing at that, how ridiculous he is. You brought up the sort of Twitter tirade about, you know, South Park turning people nihilistic a few years ago. In I think around the same time, in a very similar conversation, someone really had the the guff to basically make the same argument about uh Michael Scott on the office and they were like his character made it seem like so many of these things that you could do in a care in in an office would be appropriate and we laughed at him and i was like no the joke of michael scott is that he says these things that would never be okay and yes he still has his job but like he, we, we are laughing at how ridiculous it is. And we have someone like a gym character or someone else, right? He's a bad boss. He, he, we have the gym character to ground everything and look at the camera and reflect and say something to the audience to say, can you believe that this is going on? But you also 
get the the sort of understanding of that is that Michael Scott as a character learns and grows over time. He, you know, gets closer to the other cast members and he um sort of changes and you know, he sort of he he softens up around the edges and they bring in other characters to fill that space and that role within the dynamic of the other characters. Whereas South Park, I don't know, it kind of has that Simpsons idea of like the characters don't really change or grow or learn from their mistakes too much episode to episode. And that's part of the formula of the show. That's part of how it works. And there's a dynamic that makes that really, really interesting. What does that do that gives them the ability to sort of push boundaries in a way that if their characters have this sort of groundedness in reality and the ability to change and learn from their mistakes uh, that the other doesn't. You can't get away with having each episode build off of the last episode and still have ignorant characters from episode to episode. Because, I mean, you can to an extent, but at some point when you've you know, dealt with, say, religion or you've dealt with uh, a political party or the insanity of celebrities, if the characters are advancing from episode to episode, you lose the ability to pretty much make them stupid again uh, without your audience feeling like, oh, it, this is a betrayal of where we've watched this character grow to. Um, so, you know, and now I will say a show like Always Sunny in Philadelphia uh, is similar in a lot of ways and that, yeah, they advance certain story arcs of the characters, but the characters never learn anything really at the end of an episode. So they get to keep doing that. But everyone just keeps getting worse, yes. right? That's that's what's good about that yeah. show. So like in South Park's example, the world doesn't really grow all that much, except for when they do like long season arcs where like, oh, now we have PC Principal and he's here forever. And now we have Tegrity Farms and it's here forever. But those characters really, I don't think they've ever aged. Uh, or changed grades or anything like that. So th you're allowed to basically, you have your little um, uh, uh, controlled experiment test case to put your, you know, cultural and political ideas into and just push it back out. And you don't have to, you know, uh, you don't have to change it for the changing times of the characters. I mean, so South Park has been on the air almost 30 years now. And in that time, the characters started in third grade. They've gone on to fourth grade. That's a really long time to be through two grades, right? So, so in a certain way, they are uh, kind we of- We didn't uh, all matriculate right? at the same rate as you, Kat. Some of us had to go through these grades a few different times. A <laughs> <laughs> few, few different times, right? But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's a long time to be in two grades. And yet there is still change. I mean, like your first several seasons, Kenny dies every episode. Then Kenny dies and stays dead and then comes back. And now he's kind of a new, less flat character. You know, Butters, who's this very earnest character, at first doesn't even talk. He's just this like leave it to beaver parody. And then because he's that leave it to beaver parody, they're able to do so much more with him. He's almost like a main like a main cast character yeah, at this point, I think so. right? So I think I think that there's just there's and that's true. I think of Token, of Chef, of um, of uh, a lot of the different characters, and the reason for that is because it allows them to explore new storylines, new aspects, new perspectives. I think even in a universe that doesn't change that much, and it does change. I mean, like PC Principal wouldn't have made as much sense. If he had uh, been in the early nine in the late nineties, early two thousands episodes, it, 
he wouldn't have been a character. That person, those ideas didn't exist in the same way. And I think that's actually, that's what made has made the show so smart is that it evolved from, you know, its chief jokes being, you know, potty humor and uh, how many times and how many different ways they could kill Kenny in an episode and uh, bad advice from chef and other parents and things like that to uh, a show that said, all right, well, uh, how are we going to change? We know that we're annoyed or uh, otherwise kind of like frustrated with the way that culture is, you know, taking itself, taking either taking itself too seriously or uh, basically repressing other ideas by trying to make itself the chief thought that we'll just fold that into our story arcs. And at the risk of almost killing themselves from season to season based on some of the behind the scenes stuff, it seems like it's worked really well for them and it's kept them fresh. Like, you know, it's rare that the episode is doing the same thing as another episode. They're finding a different comedic way of going after something. And I think it, it keeps it really, really fresh. And to the freshest point, I think what's really interesting about the show is that unlike most, most TV shows, not just animated shows, they're not actually planning out the episodes before the season. All of those episodes are being filmed in, oh, not not filmed, but are being created in under a week for the most part. Some of them only a couple of days. Um, and so they're really, they are fresh because they're responding to the news of the week, the, the current things that are people are getting a little bit too invested in, uh, in, the, in the creator's view. And so I think that that also, uh, the fact that it is very much informed by what's happening in the world around it, even if the South Park world itself doesn't change that much, I think that kind of does, it, it injects that freshness. I'm curious about that. The it, it, by the way, if listeners have not seen the the really really great short documentary that was I think it was a Comedy Central production, Six Days to Air, that sort of follows them for a week before they uh, produce and and release an episode. It's a really really fascinating behind the scenes look. I believe the entire thing's on YouTube at this point, so you should check it out. Um, but because they are trying to focus on things, you know, minute to minute. I, there are, of course, classic episodes and ones that you can revisit all the time. Ha, have And this is really just a personal opinion that I'm curious about. Have any of the past episodes, if you've ever revisited them, kind of felt dated or that they're not part of the cultural conversation anymore? Or do you think that they, as a, a sort of writing staff, are really good enough that they can find the sort of invaluable, evergreen part of those conversations and latch onto them and kind of tease those out? I mean, I haven't done a, a deep dive uh, in a while, but I, I remember a few years ago I saw an episode, an earlier season episode. I'm like, oh, this doesn't hit with me quite like it did. Um, and it was not, it was an episode that had been created after they'd kind of made the switch to, you know, pulled from the headlines as their, as their chief model for creating content. Um so, I mean, as with anything, if you forget the cultural context of what the episode's making fun of, it's going to lose a little bit of steam. But I think by virtue of the fact that they are using um, uh, allegory uh, to deal with, their, you know, I mean, they're mapping whatever the cultural thing is onto something else. And then it's up to the audience to be like, oh, I know what you're talking about when you're talking about smug as a you know, as a gas that's released when people are too full of themselves, that, um, you know, that still holds true. A lot of the times you can still laugh at that just as a absurd con context that they're applying to this particular concept. I, I got nothing to add to that. I agree. 
Uh, I mean, I, I was thinking like like the episodes that I go back and watch every once in a while aren't particularly. I, I no, I guess they are actually. Now that I think about it, I, the, the the funniest episode, in my opinion, um, the, the the two that I love, I love the one with Osimo, which is where Cartman is pretending to be a robot in a cardboard box in order to to get this thing that he wants, and and it's just this wonderful episode of this horrible character being tortured. And like it, 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 there's like a good like karmic balance to it. It's very funny. I love that episode. And then the other one I love is where they they Cartman goes forward in time in order to play with the newest Nintendo PSP, right? Uh, and and PSP. And so we're we're seeing this back and forth between the future, which is like this war between sea otters and and this cult of science, and the um and then going in the past and the uh, I, I guess at this point, uh, Mister. Uh, Mr. Garrison is. Uh, I don't think they would have said transgender in that that era. I think they would have just said he'd had a sex change operation. So he is now Mrs. Garrison, and there's um, uh, Richard Dawkins uh, in this lurid sex affair with Mr. Garrison. Uh, I suppose Richard Dawkins is no longer the cult- cultural touchstone and uh, standard bearer of militant atheism that he was, but I still think it's a very funny episode. I don't think you have to know who he is to, make, to have it work. Well, and I think there's ones like, for instance, there's the Guitar Hero episode, right? And I I really like that episode, and I do think it came out at a time when Guitar Hero was a really hot game, right? Everyone was playing Guitar Hero. It was sort of like this not-just-for-gamers type thing. Um, but uh, what I think is good about it is, you know, Randy trying to impress his kid with the fact that he can play these songs on an actual guitar, and they're like... Who cares? Get out yeah. of here. We don't care. Yeah. Play it on the video game. Right. And that's like, that's a timeless message. Like anybody who has a kid or, you know, has even just doesn't have a kid, but has just gotten a little bit older, starts to see like, oh, all the stuff that I thought was cool is somehow not cool anymore. It's just that's something that you're going to keep seeing. Yeah. That inability to keep up. The trick there, by the way, because I have I have mastered this is to never at any point in your life believe you are hip. There has been no point in my life where I thought I was cool. I always thought I was funny and atavistic, and I can just keep rolling. I'm not having to deal with any of this weird, like, boomer buying a Porsche. I'm I'm cool. I'm the fun dad bull that a lot of them are doing. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I was um, driving my friend's kids to a show. He was already at the show, um, uh, and, and I, I was driving his daughters there. And and they they were they're both teenagers and they're they're getting into teenager speak of all this stuff and I thought I thought I was going to go oh my gosh because back in the day when I was a teenager teenage girls were really good at making me feel uh, out of touch and 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 uh, uh, ridiculous I can vouch for that Hayden and I thought oh this is going to be even even worse now that I'm I'm looking at forty these teenage girls talking about that I'm going to feel so and the more they spoke the more I thought oh I'm now old enough to know that what you're saying is frivolous bullshit. You don't realize it yet, but I know that whatever you're, the weird trend you're discussing is complete. You're just blah, 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 beanie babies, except it's been updated. And I don't have to care about any of this. And I delivered them safely without a car accident. Unfortunately, Heaton did say to those girls, what you're talking about is frivolous bullshit. Get out of my car. <laughs> yes, I did park the car and yell, that's frivolous bullshit. 
And I, I made them come back and, and read Balzac uh, or some other philosopher. And that was the rest of the, the rest Hayek, of the trip. Yeah, read Hayek, this. Yeah. I mean, I, I can true. I can vouch for the fact that in middle school was already thinking about getting some sort of membership to like a, uh, a royalty club where he could sit in a smoking room with uh, many leather backed books behind him. And I have accomplished that goal. And I think the he best has. thing we could shoot for is I think it's entirely possible that when I am no longer even the tiny, minute public figure that I am, and I've just quit doing all of that, maybe in my 60s, I will be ironically hip. That might happen. I might be like a farm team William Shatner at some point in my life. And that's the best I could shoot for. I did want to mention one thing. Uh, we talked about Randy just a little bit, and, and Randy Marsh. Uh, I'm I'm sure I'm not alone in this. Is one of my favorite characters in the whole show um, because he is the character who is trying to be hip and trying to be caught up and trying to be like ahead of the curve, and always does it in the worst possible way and always looks like a, a fool. Um, I mean, Tegrity Farms is such a brilliant example of him trying to get on the, you know, he's trying to get on the uh, vape train on the pot train and just doesn't know how to do it properly properly. So he comes off looking like a complete idiot. Uh, they did a, they did another he, one. His, the, 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 the ethos of his characters, he is the feckless bandwagoner. Yes. And, and so we can all like, as opposed to just being earnestly passionate about something, he just really wants to do the thing everybody else is doing. And he, he lacks the, the moral, fortitude to do it in, in a good way. And so we all want to laugh at that because we all we all dislike the phonies, right? Yeah. There was a recent uh, Integrity Farms episode where he's at a convention uh, for uh, pot uh, salesmen. And the speaker at the convention says something along the lines of, uh, we now accept that the best way to be a successful marijuana business is to be a diverse marijuana business. And it just cuts to Rand in the audience going, what? <laughs> and then he realizes that he needs to hire uh, an African-American person on his board just to be hip with the current pot culture. Uh, and then, of course, he does it in yeah, completely so, the wrong so, way. So as someone who has uh, worked in drug policy uh, for since 2007, has worked along with a lot of these uh, dispensaries, it's just that is that's not even a parody that's actually how what's happening a lot of times so that, that's hilarious i i kind of tuned out of south park not out of opposition to it i just kind of quit watching it and i've not really felt compelled to watch it again around like maybe 2018 it's about when the integrity the, the integrity farm stuff started i just i haven't really dipped in much since then um am i missing out should i should i catch up well i'll say this it's uh it's great it's a little harder sometimes to uh pop in because the they've kind of switched to a model where the seasons have an arc as well so they have individual funny things really? that are, yeah wow they've they've gotten to where they're folding in like longer stories that are happening over the course of many episodes in addition to the small episode stories that are happening so i think it makes it it makes it a little more difficult to just pop in for one or two mm, okay but it's it can be more satisfying too also, I tend to eat ice cream when I'm in the bathtub and watch stuff. So it's either going to be that or Star Trek The Next Generation. Maybe I'll binge that. Again. Next time on Pop and Lock, Star Trek The Next Generation, but everybody's in a bathtub eating I'm ice there cream. for it. 100%. <laughs> Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. 
That's pop, the letter N, lock, with an E like the philosopher, pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and please rate and review us if you like the show. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is a project of Libertarianism.org and is produced by me, Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at Libertarianism.org.